If you have a Bible, if you would, turn to Mark chapter 6. We are going right through the book of Mark. As you turn to the book of Mark chapter 6, it might be a good idea just to offer a reminder of the thesis statement, I think, of Mark. And I'm going to go ahead and stay there in Mark chapter 6. I just want to remind everybody what Mark said in chapter 1. He said, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the very beginning of this book that we began reading, Jesus is going out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message was a message of God's timing is fulfilled, you've been waiting for a Messiah, you've been waiting for the entrance of the kingdom of God, You've read about it in the Old Testament scriptures, which they wouldn't have said Old Testament. You've read about it in the Tanakh. You've read about it in the Torah. You have read about the scripture that there is a time coming where the kingdom of God breaks in. And that time is now. That would have been a very powerful moment. And as Jesus' ministry moves out, and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, he is showing everybody, I am the figurehead of that kingdom. I am the king of that kingdom. And to prove it, everything coming out of my mouth is going to amaze and change the way you look at everything. And I am going to do things like tell storms to stop. I'm going to heal lepers. I'm going to cast out demons. Everywhere that I go, I am the inauguration of the kingdom. It is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news that the kingdom is at hand. So, that's the thesis statement. Keep that in the back of your mind. Let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, there are there's a lot here. 
There's scary stuff here. There's difficult things here. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. Lord, I thank you for that. Help me to communicate what should be and needs to be communicated. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, let's just get the setting of where we're at. Jesus has come back across the lake. The demon-possessed folks were taken care of. Last week, we found out as soon as he gets out of the boat, Jerry, J- Jairus, I always want to call him Jairus, it's Jairus, comes up to him, uh, tells him about his sick daughter, and on his way to go heal the sick daughter, the woman with the issue of blood comes up, and she is healed because of her faith, and then he goes, and because of the delay, Jairus' daughter is dead, and then Jesus says, that's not a big deal to me, I am the resurrection and the life, that's actually from John, but that's who he is, and he raises the little girl from the dead. That's where he was, or that's where we were last week. Then, he goes back to his hometown. All throughout the book of Mark, we've been in Capernaum, or across the sea, over into the Decapolis, into the Gentile region, but now Jesus is taking his disciples, and notice that it says, his disciples followed him. That is really important, because Jesus is about to do something in the rest of this chapter where he sends the disciples out. So what we're reading here, you can look at as Jesus giving an object lesson of what they can expect because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You are going to hear a little bit more about that here. So his disciples are with him and he goes to his hometown, which is about 25 miles to the south and to the west of Capernaum. Think of Capernaum as the really nice, well-to-do, upper middle class, really good fish. The Romans like to hang out there because the food is good. Lake town. Picture Nazareth. Please forgive me. Picture Nazareth as outweighing. Picture Nazareth as not quite the same. What we know about Nazareth is, is that we don't know much about Nazareth, because it was little, it was insignificant, except for this important fact, the king of the universe grew up there. Other than that, in terms of history, Nazareth is about a 60-acre city amongst the the rocky hills, 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. So, it's a small community. How many of you in here grew up in a small community? Anybody? Anybody grew up in the kind of town that when you broke up with your boyfriend, for some reason, the lady at the supermarket knew about it before the day was over? Raise your hand, you know what I'm talking about. You, if you... If somebody got pregnant out of wedlock back in the day when that was still scandalous, and it still should be, but back in the day when it was, how many, like everybody knew, right? Even the little old cat lady that doesn't leave her house, somehow she knew? You guys know what I'm talking about. A small town where everybody knows what's going on. Nazareth. Jesus grew up there. And I want you to think about this for a second. 
Because Jesus did not begin His ministry until He was 30 years old. Which meant He was doing something before that. He was a carpenter. In fact, they actually say in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Didn't he fix Bill's cabinets? Is this? That's the way they're talking about him. In fact, um, the word carpenter is tecton in the, in the Greek, which is where we get the word architect. And it can mean a stonemason. It can mean a worker of wood. As far as we know, Jesus worked with wood or he worked with stone. He worked with something with his hands. He was a laborer. There's something really neat about that. The creator of the universe made stuff when he was here. I don't know why that is. It's just God is not ever looking down his nose at garbage men or carpenters or factory workers or blue collar life any more than he's looking down his nose at academia or he's looking down his nose at anybody. God gives gifts to his people in many different capacities. What he wants from us is do everything that we do is unto the Lord. That's not my sermon today, but it works. Jesus was a carpenter. Grew up in Nazareth. Everybody would have known who he was. Everybody would have known his family. And because we know that Jesus lived his entire life without sin, he would have been a bit of a standout in excellence. Right? Remember we kind of made the joke that Mary and Joseph could have very easily said to all of Jesus' younger siblings, why can't you be more like your brother? And it would have been the only time that that was truly appropriate in the history of parenting because their brother happened to be the Son of God. So Jesus is going back to his hometown. And you can tell by the way this sounds what's going on. It doesn't take a, a theological degree to figure this out, this small town experience that Jesus is having, because it's not any small town, it's his small town that he grew up in. Verse 2 says, On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. This is what happens. Visiting rabbis are invited in to speak. Jesus did not have any formal training, but he was being looked at as a rabbi, and the fame of him has spread all throughout the region, and it has most assuredly come back to Nazareth. When he's teaching, their reaction is astonishment. This is the reaction Jesus is getting everywhere, because nobody ever taught as this man, the Scripture says. Nobody ever heard the way he expounded Scripture. He wasn't just expounding on, I think this is, or this is what uh, this rabbi said. Jesus spoke with authority because he was the living Word of God. So people are astonished. And they say, listen to what they say, where did this man get these things? Notice that they're not rejecting that what he's saying is wrong. They're just asking where to get them. And 
How are such mighty works done by His hands? And before that, what is the wisdom given to Him? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not His sisters here with us? Now, real quick on that, and it's important to point this out. Number one, you can tell that they are not saying these things complimentary. You can tell that they're annoyed. In fact, the very uh, uh, down where I lost it. Oh, it's right after that. And they took offense at him. You get, not only can you tell by the questions they're asking, it says in the text they take offense at him. In Greek, offense means scandalized. They are scandalized that this guy from our town has this wisdom, these teachings, and we keep hearing about these mighty works that are done by his hands. They're not happy. You would think that they would be. Right? How many buildings are named after Robert C. Byrd? All of them? Is that the answer? All of them in the state of West Virginia? Every single road and highway? Why is that? Because he was in the Senate for, how old is the country? 245 years? He was in the Senate forever and ever, and lots of money rolled into little old West Virginia because of Senator Robert C. Byrd, which is why everything is named after him. You would think that the hometown would be excited, but this is not the way they accept him. Because from their point of view, Jesus hasn't done anything for them. From their point of view, they are offended and scandalized that he has all this fame outside of Nazareth. A couple things here too. One, it also says that the people said that he's the son of Mary. That is not the normal way to describe a Jewish man. You would always say the son of Joseph. They Now in Matthew, they, I believe, is where they do say that. But here, they say the son of Mary. The reason that some people believe that they're saying that is either, okay, this is proof that Joseph died, but even when somebody died, you still call them the son of their father. It doesn't matter that the father's dead. So, so the other option is they're calling him the son of Mary, and they mean that to be a dig because they've heard the story from his birth because Mary came back with Joseph to Nazareth. Does anybody remember the Christmas story? Her and Joseph were not yet together and she was found with child after being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit because of the virgin birth. You can imagine what kind of rumors there were about Mary and they follow her home. So we don't know exactly. The Bible does not give us a lot of detail there, but this is one of those places where you can get maybe a hint that Jesus lived his entire life there in Nazareth as, yeah, there's the kid that was born out of wedlock. Child of fornication. 
So, all of that's going on here in Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Everybody understands uh, what, what Jesus is saying. I don't get any respect here. A prophet is not without honor until he comes home. The rest says he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled. <clears throat> he marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two places in Scripture that Jesus marvels. One is here, and one is when the centurion has great faith. Jesus marveled at the great faith, and he marveled at this level of unbelief. Those are the only two places he does it. For us to understand this morning the kind of unbelief that's here, I want us to look at the parallel account in Luke, which fleshes this out a little bit more so we can understand. Because when I come away from here, I recognize that they're annoyed, they're offended, they're scandalized over Jesus, their own hometown boy who they know fixed cabinets or was a carpenter. They know the family. We know your mother and your brother and your sisters are all here. By the way, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Jesus uh, also, we know that uh, James and we know that Jude are going to become believers. We don't know about the rest of the family, but we know at least them become believers. But at this point in time, they are not believers. Remember back in chapter 3 when they tried to get him away from the crowds of people because of the miracles and they thought he was out of his mind? They made a trip from Nazareth to Capernaum and tried to get Jesus out. And they said he was crazy. And Jesus said, I'm here doing the work that the Father sent me. And then they come back. So Jesus is now returning home. You can imagine what the brothers and the sisters are like, right? They're, they're probably like, oh, he's at the synagogue. Because it's a small town, and they know they're going to have to put up with whatever the talk of the town is. Okay, go with me to Luke chapter 4. Because Luke gives us more detail in this sermon in the synagogue. Because Mark does not give us the sermon. But Luke does. Verse 16 of chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, 
the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what did he just say when he said that? Because there was no other rabbi who had ever said that. There was nobody who had ever sat down in the synagogue and said, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. When he's reading about Isaiah 61, he's reading about the coming of the Messiah who's anointed to do all these things. Jesus sits down and says, it's fulfilled. They clearly knew what he meant because it did not make them happy. He rolled the scroll up, he gives it back, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So they begin. Luke begins recording that they're not denying that the stuff coming out of Jesus' mouth is gracious and great because nobody ever spoke like this man. But then you see, which Mark gives us a little more detail about, is this not Joseph's son? And the reason we know that it goes off the rails is because in verse 23, and he said to them, now listen to what Jesus says back to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We want to see some miracles, Jesus. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. By the way, she was a Gentile. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? There were many widows in Israel. There were many widows amongst the chosen people of God. And yet, God sent the prophet to this lady who is not. She's a Gentile. And he doesn't stop there. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them were cleansed. But only Naaman the Syrian, the warlord. Not a good guy. And Elisha was sent to him, not an Israelite. A Gentile. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Oh, that's not a good reaction to a sermon. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus tells his hometown... The same thing he says in Mark where he says a prophet's not accepted uh, in his own country. He says that to them, but Luke has fleshed it out a little bit and let us know that the sermon was about the Messiah and that he was him. I'm here. This has been fulfilled. And they are saying, we reject that. 
We know that they reject that because they try to kill him. Because they don't, you don't see the words, we reject that. You see the words, Jesus marvels at their unbelief, and you see that their reaction in Luke is to take him to a cliff. They, try, they want to murder him. Small town Nazareth, where he grew up, they want to take the carpenter's son to a cliff and throw him off because he says to them, there were many widows in Israel, but God sent this prophet Elijah to the lady outside of Israel. and There were many lepers, and none of them were healed, but Naaman, the Syrian warlord, he was healed. And he, he is pronouncing upon them the judgment of God of when Israel is in rebellion like they were in the time of Elijah and Elisha. When Israel is in rebellion, God historically rejects them. And he's still merciful. And he still demonstrates that mercy. But he is not demonstrating it to the hard, impenitent, unrepentant, unbelieving hearts of the nation of Israel. And you, Nazareth, my hometown, are just like that. They knew that's what he was teaching. They knew that's what he was saying. And they wanted to kill him for it. Does anybody remember the story of Stephen when he was stoned? In the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost, he goes to preach. And at the end of his sermon, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not murder? Because you stiff-necked people will not listen. They pick up stones and they did kill Stephen, the very first martyr of the church. This is one of those, it's kind of a, Another sobering text of Scripture. Because Jesus goes home and He's rejected by His own people. John 1 verse 11 says that Christ came to His own and His own did not receive Him. Jesus is rejected because they're scandalized and offended they have contempt for him. This is what Jesus encounters at Nazareth. Now, if I had a sermon title for you this morning, it would be, The Field in Which We Sow. Remember I said that at the beginning, that it was important for us to note that his disciples are with him. And if you go back to Mark, so everybody go back to Mark. Now that you've got a fuller understanding of what Jesus preached, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 6, which we're going to talk about in detail next week, Jesus is giving his disciples instructions because right after this passage we're reading, he sends out the twelve, gives them authority to cast out demons, gives them authority to heal the sick, and he tells them to preach the gospel, the same gospel he just preached at Nazareth that almost got him killed. 
and verse 11 says, and if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus is preparing his disciples that the fields that they are going to go sow the seed of the gospel into are not going to throw a parade in your honor, necessarily. There are communities that do receive the gospel and whole places are converted and there are places that try to murder and kill. And our job as Christians is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Not just try to figure out well, which are the people like the people at Nazareth and which are the people that are going to accept. Because I would rather not have somebody want to throw me off a cliff. That would be preferable. That is not our job to figure that out. In fact, we can't figure that out. Some of us try though, right? Don't we try to do that a little bit? I'm not going to share the gospel with him because he's super angry. I'm not going to share the gospel with her because she'll report me to HR. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody feel those feelings? I'm not going to say this thing to this person or I'm not going to share what I believe to be true because I don't want to be canceled. I think all of us feel that. Jesus is showing the disciples through the object lesson of teaching at Nazareth that not everybody is going to accept you. Not everybody's going to receive the message. Let's go back here to Mark chapter 6. Jesus tells them a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. There were no The word mighty work means miraculous. He did not do any mighty miraculous sign like he has done in other places. Now, what's really ironic about that is, is that it goes on and it says he does heal a few sick people. So there were still people healed. The irony being that he still did some things. If it were you and me and a bunch of people got healed or a few people got healed, I think we would call that a banner afternoon. Right? But the emphasis here is on the fact that the unbelief of these people, the obstinate, angry, murderous unbelief of these people was not a place where the Spirit of God was working at all. These people have rejected. And as a result, God is doing nothing amongst their midst, mostly. Not entirely. Because there were some people healed. There is hope that there may have been some people in Nazareth that doesn't tell us that may have believed in Him. We know that some of them will. Mary believed in Him. By the way, I hope I didn't communicate that Mary didn't believe in Jesus. She, she believed because she had received that report from the angel, and she, the Bible says she held these things and pondered them in her heart. But His brothers don't believe 
but we know that later they do after the resurrection. James becomes one of the leaders of the church, but in Mark chapter 6, I'm not sure he was ready to throw Jesus off the cliff. That was the leaders in the synagogue, but he was embarrassed, scandalized along with the rest. He didn't believe in him. Now when it says he could do no mighty work there, the emphasis is on the fact that the people don't believe. Because he goes on and it says he marvels because of their unbelief. This kind of unbelief, this rejection, this utter contempt is similar to what you see in Romans chapter 1. In fact, I'm going to read uh, some of Romans chapter 1. So Romans 1, verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity. And if you go down to verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That is the homosexuality passages. In verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. The work of the Spirit of God produces either regenerate hearts or it compounds with interest the wrath of God as people obstinately reject Christ. Remember we talked about this a little bit ago, that, that the message becomes a message that brings judgment because you're hearing it and refusing it, stiff-arming it, resisting it. You will stand before God in the day of judgment having all of the gospel that you received and rejected standing against you as a testimony to your unbelief. I know that's really exciting. The emphasis, though, is on the unbelief. And the reason I'm saying that is, is that when it says he could do no mighty work there, the emphasis is not on he could not, as if God could do nothing. Because it does say he healed a few sick people. God works in unbelief all the time. However, this kind of unbelief that is obstinate rejection of Christ, there will be no mighty works done. There will be no work of the Spirit done because you have said, No! And this is not to be confused with doubt. Because doubt and unbelief are different. And there are levels to the unbelief itself, which we're going to see. I promise this sermon will get better in terms of hope. Look at Mark chapter 9. There's somebody in our church who wrote a song about this. 
Mark 9, verse 24. This is the man who's got a child with an unclean spirit. He wants Jesus to heal him. And Jesus, he says, I know that you can. Jesus says, if you can, this is verse 23, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's recognizing that I believe, but I got some doubts. I have the unbelief as well. I am coming before you with a mixture of both believing and not believing. Because I've heard about you, Jesus. I've seen you in action. We know what you've been out here doing. So I believe that, but my, my child is so messed up. The idea that it could be better is really difficult. So I believe, and yet I have unbelief. Help my unbelief. Do you see the difference between that and we want to throw you off a cliff? There is a huge difference between the two. So what does Jesus do? He, he helps him. He heals. Don't get confused that what Jesus is describing here is doubt. Because it has been taught that without if you don't have this 100% faith and trust in God, nothing is ever going to work for you. And the answer to all the reasons your prayers haven't been answered the way that you thought that they should be is because you didn't have 100% pure, unadulterated faith. And that's why, and here's the verse that proves it, He could do no mighty works there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people. That is not what this verse is teaching. This verse is teaching that the Spirit of God has brought judgment to the unbelieving, rejecting people who've rejected Christ. It's not an example of you being like the guy in Mark chapter 9 who have some belief and some unbelief. God, in His grace and His mercy, loves us and works with us where we are. These people are not interested. That's why I read Romans 1. Even though they knew that God was there, they reject Him. Therefore, God gives them over to the things that they're insisting that they have in sin. This unbelief is radical, otherwise Jesus would not have marveled at it. I want to read something I got out of a commentary a really, really old commentary. It's over 500 years old. Is that alright if we hear the thoughts of somebody from over 500 years ago? When Mark declares that Christ could not perform any miracles, he represents the aggravated guilt of those by whom his goodness was prevented. For certainly unbelievers, as far as lies in their power, bind up the hands of God by their obstinacy. That's the willful no. Not that God is overcome as if he were an inferior, but because they do not permit him to display his power. Now here's where the hopeful part is. We must observe, however, that Mark adds that some sick people, notwithstanding, were cured. For hence we infer that the goodness of Christ strove with their malice 
and triumphed over every obstacle. We have experience of this same thing daily with respects to God. For, though He justly and reluctantly restrains His power because the entrance to us is shut against Him, yet we see that He opens up a path for Himself where none exists and ceases not to bestow favors upon us. What an amazing contest that while we are endeavoring by every possible method to hinder the grace of God from coming to us, it rises victorious and displays its efficacy in spite of our exertions. I thought that was really good. That was John Calvin 500 years ago. God's goodness still broke through in Nazareth even when they had obstinate rejection and unbelief. Why is that good news? Because we need some good news, right? You need some good news in the face of people that want to throw you off the cliff. In fact, there's hope. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter one. Verse twelve. This is the Apostle Paul giving his testimony. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent that actually sounds like the folks at Nazareth. He was an insolent opponent. He was so radicalized against the Gospel, against Jesus Christ as Lord. He was an opponent, but not a normal opponent. He was an insolent opponent. He despised Christians and tried to get as many of them thrown in jail or killed as he could. He was on his way to Damascus to get rid of more of them. He was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So his unbelief was wicked. His unbelief was bad. His unbelief was wrong and insolent. He was a persecutor of the church. But look at how mercy is still coming at him. So not all unbelief is instantly like the Romans chapter 1 category where you're given over to the carnality of your desire. Though that happens. And church, I don't know when God does that. There's no way for me to say, well, when does God give people over? to their unbelief and the rejection. When does he just give them over to that? I have no idea. I don't know when he does it, and it's not going to be the same for everybody, but there comes a point in the rejection of Christ that you are just given over totally to your heart's desire of unbelief in the wickedness of it. 
But Paul was not there, obviously. Which is why we can't look at people and say, well, they're, they're an unbeliever living in sinful unbelief, therefore God's already done with them. That is not the conclusion. That's why I wanted to look at these verses here to say, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I think we sang this in a song this morning. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners who are unbelievers of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, as the front runner of sin, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe, that would be us in the future, in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The hope of this verse is, is that if the fields that we are sowing are filled with unbelievers, some of which are willing to take us to the edge of the cliff in their unbelief, if that's the field that we're sowing in, we also need to know that in the same field are unbelievers who may as of this very second be rejecting every offer of the Gospel. They may be obstinately resisting now, but we don't know when and how the Holy Spirit will break through into their life. So our job is not to understand what God's doing. Our job is to preach who God is. Our job is to preach the Gospel, sow the seed, and not try to figure out how it's going to work out. Part of our job is to also understand, like Jesus, by taking them to Nazareth in this experience, is that there is radical unbelief. And you could be utterly rejected. You could be, and probably five years ago I would have said this half-heartedly, but I say it today in deadly earnest. You could be fired for being a Christian. Now, let's be very clear. It is not our job to try to get fired to prove our faithfulness to Jesus. Amen? We should not be persecuted for stupidity's sake. We should be persecuted for righteousness' sake. But we are definitely living in a time where things are rapidly unraveling and different. I don't even know how to express all of it. But you could be fired for being a Christian. You could be fired for having beliefs consistent with Scripture. I've often wondered if somebody might report me for the stuff I say in a sermon that gets... Post it online. I don't know. I hope not. But 
We should be, Jennifer read this out of Peter, we, we should be looking for ways to preach the gospel with boldness and meekness, with courage and humility. We can't just get on the, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to be courageous without the corresponding humility and love. Right? But you need the sermon, I want you to understand that you're going to encounter rejection. You're going to encounter um, unbelief. You're going to encounter obstinacy. You're going to encounter that. And that should not discourage you from continuing. But you shouldn't also try to get people mad. Does that make sense? I don't think that's as big of a problem, though. I think the bigger problem is getting us to open our mouths and share that Jesus is Lord and share the good news of the gospel. So as we go through the book of Mark and Jesus is sending out the 12 apostles and we we just keep going, you're just going to see this theme, this missional theme as God is showing the kingdom and its arrival through Jesus Christ and it's just going to be this bulldozer that keeps going forward. And they're shooting flaming arrows at the bulldozer, but it is going where God wants it. We wind up at the cross. We are ambassadors of this message. We should all be praying, Lord, help me be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Help me to be humble, loving, courageous, and bold all at the same time. Because in my flesh, I am not very good at any of those. Let's all stand up. We're going to pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the hope that's in the Gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul received mercy because he was acting ignorantly in unbelief. And I don't don't know how many people we know and love and are talking to that are acting right now ignorantly in unbelief. God opened doors of ministry through the people in this church to have courageous humility to speak to these people the loving truth of the Gospel that Jesus Christ died for their sin. God, I pray that You would give us boldness, that You would give us courage, that You would give us humility, You would give us grace. Lord, draw us closer to Yourself. Let us be a light wherever we're at. Lord, I thank You for this. We give You glory for it. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Church, we love you. You are officially dismissed.